Episode 138, Twisted. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a July 26, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on our website, kshs.org. Tornadoes have threatened residents of the Great Plains for centuries. But until the late 1800s, most Americans had never actually seen one. That changed on April 26, 1884, when unique circumstances allowed a farmer in Anderson County, Kansas, to capture the first known photograph of a tornado. Join Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine the bizarre circumstances that surrounded this rare photograph and discover how it forever changed weather forecasting. All they are is dust in the Then we go behind the scenes with researchers to look at the early development of a map exhibit. Did you know that Denver was once part of Kansas? We didn't either, until we saw it on a map. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author from Emporia, Kansas, to the International Space Station. Did White dream of floating weightless and eating space ice cream? But first, Twisted. Hello, Merle. Hello, Nikayla. Today we're discussing what many people believe to be the first photograph taken of a tornado. Indeed. Um, it only seems right that this image would have been taken in Kansas. Of course. Yeah. The land of Oz, right? Toto. The photo exists in two forms, a single photo and then a stereograph. Um, it's sepia-toned and shows a thin rope-like cloud descending over a group of what look like wood frame houses and buildings in the mid-ground and the foreground, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. <clears throat> okay, so based on what we see in this photo, April 26, 1884, was an eventful day in Anderson County, Kansas. Where is Anderson County, and what was the weather like? Anderson County is located in east-central Kansas. Uh, you can think of it, it's about an hour away from Kansas City. It is the county, the county seat is Garnett, Kansas, mm -hmm. and there's about four or five other towns in the county. Today, Anderson County, it's increasingly becoming just kind of urban sprawl for Kansas City, mm -hmm. but... In its day, in the 1880s, it would have been pretty pretty highly rural. There would have been, uh, Garnett would have been the biggest town, and there was a couple other towns, Westphalia, a couple other towns that were pretty small mm -hmm. and uh, pretty spread out. Like all of Kansas, Anderson County was susceptible to extreme weather shifts. Mm -hmm. um, Kind of the basic phenomenon is uh, you get weather stability when you have large bodies of water like oceans. The coastlines are typically more stable uh, in their weather. But when you get in the middle of a continent, in the interior of a continent, weather gets pretty erratic. Mm -hmm. And that's because as weather cells move over a landmass, the kind of the temperature gets messed up. You get varying air pressure. And that's what causes uh, storm cells to kind of build on themselves. Um, so the plain states typically have... Uh, the most tornadoes. So that's kind of what you're going to be, what, what, what you would have been looking like in Anderson County, Kansas, a place that was known for 
some extreme weather rolling through and sparsely populated. So you had people out here, enough people just established towns, but not really a heavy population. Okay, so the photo we're discussing, as I mentioned, is believed to be the first ever to show a tornado. But photography had actually been around for several decades at this point. I mean, we know of photos, you know, on the battlefields of the Civil War and, you know, in France earlier than that. Mm -hmm. So why hadn't anyone captured a tornado before this? A lot of elements kind of had to come together to make this particular image possible. And it's pretty... It's pretty exciting when you start to think about it. Mm -hmm. So first, you have to take account uh, into the uh, concept of the tornado itself and the frequency of tornadoes. Tornadoes happen a lot, but not all over the U.S. They happen primarily with like heavy frequency in the Midwest, some in the South, but more or less in kind of a narrow strip of states from the Dakotas down to Texas is where you have a lot of them, where you have enough of them that you can kind of begin to establish some predictability. Mm -hmm. And by predictability, I mean you can safely say there'll be a tornado this year. <laughs> you don't know when. It might happen. But, you know, you can narrow it down to a span of a couple months. Mm -hmm. So you also have, uh, you have to have a place with frequency and you also have to have a place with enough people. People that the, the that the probability that someone will be around when this tornado happens has to be good because tornadoes can happen. And in the 1880s, they were happening just as much as they happen now. Mm -hmm. It's just that no one was around to see them right, or experience on open, them. Open farmland. They're on or open farmland, open exactly. Land, yeah. um, okay, and so then photography technology did have to get to the point that it was conducive to, to photographing a tornado. Mm -hmm. So, like you had said. Photography been around for a while. I mean, by most accounts, probably invented in the 1830s uh, or became really kind of standardized in the 1830s. It really blew up during the Civil War. It really experienced a lot of heavy use. And then people, uh, after the Civil War, it was getting used a lot. But it was very cumbersome. Even by 1884, by the time this photograph, a camera was used for this photograph, it was still cumbersome. What I mean by cumbersome is it wasn't a, a it wasn't tiny camera digital camera. It wasn't the iPhone. Right. No, no. It was probably a 15-pound piece of equipment that you were going to have more. to set up made out of wood with parts that had to be screwed tight, assembled, a stand that had to be built under it. And you also had to deal with chemicals to create flash, to create the film that would capture the image. It was a long, rigorous process. Fortunately, by the time uh, in 1884 comes around, uh, you've pretty well adapted what's known as a glass plate negative. And a glass plate negative was developed to the point that it could kind of be prepackaged. You had your negative ready to go. All you had to do was slide it into the camera. So then, the, so you got those two things. So then what you had to have is you had to have the photographer with that camera in the same place as the tornado. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you had to have a photographer that was willing to set up his camera in the same place <laughs> as the tornado and not run the other way. Um, so prior to that, like I said, there's really tornadoes really happen in a small region. Uh, and within that region, there's only a small small population that would have, have experienced a tornado. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, there was really only a handful of people who had ever even seen what a tornado looked like. Mm -hmm. Okay. There was a lot of people that could make drawings of what they looked like afterwards. But even the scientists and the people who would study this stuff really had no concept of what a tornado might look like. So what, I mean, we've established now that photography was pretty, kind of still in its infancy, still a pretty cumbersome 
process. What was weather forecasting like in the late 1880s? And did people know what to expect from day to day like we do now? You know, we base what we wear to work on uh-huh. the weather forecast. Or did they have that or was it kind of a surprise every day? Um, well, meteorology, meteorology at the time, which is the study of weather, was nothing like it is today. However, in 1884, it was, I found it to be, surprisingly well organized. Um, it was managed by what's called the U.S. Signal Corps, uh, the U.S. Army Signal Corps. And it seems odd that those were the people in charge of weather forecasting at the time. But they had really had the most ability to coordinate and uh, coordinate information from all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it also weather had a pretty severe uh, military implications. And the military was just learning that there was advantages to being able to know what weather conditions were like in parts of the world that you may not be able to see. Uh, over time, this U.S. Signal Corps, uh, they evolved over time. And in fact, they went beyond military. They started bringing in scientists. Um, they started bringing in biologists and physicists to help them understand how weather functions. So what you see in this t- span of time is the prediction of weather has gone from somewhat superstitious to an extent, mm-hmm. looking at your caterpillar crawling down the tree to see what color it is. Or my knee hurts. Right. Brain. To actually becoming a science. Mm-hmm. And they're more into tracking. They can't forecast, but they can cer- certainly track and they will document how weather played out, mm-hmm. which will eventually feed into building models and being able to forecast weather. Mm-hmm. So who took this photo and why was he successful in finally capturing an elusive tornado? The photo was taken by a local fruit farmer who actually was an amateur photographer. A.A. Adams was his name. He was born in Virginia and he came to Kansas as a young man. He served in the Civil War. Where interestingly, I'm guessing he, that's where he probably first became familiar with the camera, was on the hmm. Civil War battlefields. That's interesting. Um, So he came back to Kansas afterwards and established a photo studio in Lawrence. Mm -hmm. Either the studio failed or Adams found a better opportunity because in 1867, he moved near some family members in Anderson County, Kansas, Mm -hmm. and focused more on the farmer aspect. I think he still maintained uh, maintained photography as a hobby Mm -hmm. and probably made a little extra cash with Mm -hmm. it. So that brings us up to April 26, 1884, the day in which uh, Adams becomes famous, to an extent. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. (laughs) Um, So for three days, actually three days prior to, the U.S. Signal Corps is tracking the progress of a pretty volatile storm cell moving through Kansas. How do I know this? Because the U.S. Signal Corps, which was the precursor to the National Weather Service, they kept track of this information. They had weather stations. Uh, This is actually what made them very effective is they had weather stations throughout the U.S. that fed that information to the headquarters in Washington, D.C. And each day they could produce a weather map, which actually a weather map in 1884, if you think about this, looks surprisingly Mm -hmm. similar to what you will see on the nightly news today. But Adams had lived in Kansas for about 30 years, so he could probably look outside and say that, you know, we're going to have some crazy weather. So Mm -hmm. at that point, he probably started prepping those glass plate slides. Mm -hmm. He probably started maybe packing up the camera maybe a little bit. So uh, at roughly 5.30 p.m., 26 April, that is when uh, residents of Garnett, Kansas, uh, state that they saw a tornado come down from the sky. And it came down from the sky, and it hit probably about 14 miles to the west of Garnett in near the tiny town of Westphalia, Kansas. Mm-hmm. So it didn't actually hit the town, but it hits near it, and it just starts moving through the open prairie. 
Adams being kind of the photographer, and I mean, he probably saw people on battlefield taking pictures, so this was this was no big deal, mm-hmm. right? So he sets up his camera on the on a corner street near the United Presbyterian Church in Garnett, aims the camera at the tornado. So he's taking a little while to set up this camera, bumbling around. That finally gets set up. Finally gets an opportunity to take one shot, one singular image. Because the the tornado was really not on the ground. It was only on the ground for about thirty minutes. Probably took him a while to register where it was, where it was headed, to get mm-hmm. his camera set up, mm-hmm. and get the image. And so we get the image that we see before us today, which actually depicts the tornado fairly small in the distance. But along the right edge, you can see a picture of the United Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. Well, another tornado photo was taken in South Dakota later that year in August of 1884, and it was long considered to be the first. Why did it get so much press over the Garnett photo? Certainly Adams knew the value of the image he had because shortly after he took it, he started producing souvenir cabinet cards and stereographs, which mm-hmm. are just early forms of photograph uh, of photography that can be sold and uh, sold and viewed. However, four months later... Uh, there was a tornado, a very, a pretty large storm that hit South Dakota, and there was a man who took a photograph, and his photograph was just more dramatic. Um, like we said, the photograph in Garnett rolled to the open prairie, and it really didn't damage that many people. It hit one lumber wagon, but nobody died. Mm-hmm. The one in South Dakota was fatal. It killed mm-hmm. people. Uh, so it got a lot of media headlines. And with the media headlines now, they had an image to associate with it. However, our image, um, fortunately, after the tornado hit Garnett, there was a newspaper reporter that went out the next day to take some photos, and he got accounts from the people. And the people described the tornado that they saw, and they described it as long, rope-like, which mm-hmm. is exactly uh, how it, the image depicts, depicts it. So right. two unrelated sources, the photograph and the eyewitness accounts of people, almost identically described this tornado. Okay, so Mr. Adams' first instinct upon seeing a tornado headed to his town was to set up his cumbersome camera equipment Mm -hmm. and get a photograph. Mm -hmm. If you had been living in Garnett, Kansas in 1884, uh, what would you have done if you saw a tornado heading heading toward you? And for that matter, what would you do today if a tornado was headed for Topeka? Well, Mr. Adams actually exhibited a pretty standard reaction to tornadoes <laughs> in Kansas. Uh, even today, once a tornado warning is sounded, you very well may see several Kansans step out of their house with a camera in true, hand. True, true. Um, some will even jump on their flatbed pickup and try to get a closer uh, image of the camera. I can tell you that if I were there in 1884 and a tornado was bound directly for me, I would not be lugging out my 15-pound <laughs> camera. Instead, I would probably be inside that Presbyterian church, uh, maybe saying a few prayers. You think so? Yeah. yeah. And today, what would you do today? Uh, I might grab my camera. Go outside. Go outside and get a snapshot. I have a tendency to go to the basement, but then make multiple trips up and down the stairs yeah, to see what's it. going on. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, Merle. Yep. This is a public service announcement. This is only a test. Meteorology has made great strides in forecasting, but tornadoes remain somewhat of a mystery. Tornadoes are too dangerous to measure on the ground, and radar can't penetrate the funnel itself. As a result, experts know very little about what takes place inside the twister. 
Most scientific data is determined by examining debris after the event. Scientists use this data to rank tornadoes on the Fujita scale, which is the subject of today's Kansas quiz. In 2006, the scale was recalibrated and named the Enhanced Fujita Scale. Within a year, a tornado struck Kansas that maxed the new scale, measuring EF5. What was the name of the town devastated by this EF5? I'll be back in a moment with the answer. Did you remember the favor you tell it? In 2012, the Historical Society will open an exhibit that features some impressive maps from its collection. Before that can happen, though, a great deal of planning and research must take place. Today, we go behind the scenes with Museum Assistant Director Rebecca Martin to map out a map exhibit. Maps have a variety of purposes and can transfer a great deal of information just by looking at it. I mean, it visually signals a lot of information. Mm -hmm. In historical terms, what can maps tell us about Kansas beyond just geographical boundaries? I know you can, like, you can mark towns and roads and stuff, but is there anything else we can see by looking at a map? Uh, there's a lot of things, and I think the, some of the earliest maps, one of the fascinating, most fascinating aspects about them is they show the changing perceptions about the landscape out here over time. Um, for example, uh, the military explorations basically wrote this off as a desert, the Great American Desert, mm -hmm. and it was good for nothing except Indian Territory. And then over time, you start to see, you know, development of towns, uh, development of farms, and um, this complete shift in perception about how useful this land might be, especially as it impacts the Plains states. Mm -hmm. I think maps can also tell us um, a lot about the map maker, yeah. just as much as it does about the um, what's being depicted. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. a military expedition is obviously going to track and read things one way while a, you know, a, a company that's looking to produce agriculture might certainly yeah. come in here and not necessarily consider it the great American desert. No, but really the bottom line often is money. I mean, mm -hmm. how much, yeah, what, what can the land do for me? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's very telling throughout. And so we're going to be exploring that in the exhibit too. Excellent. The map exhibit begin, uh, began with a rather interesting piece of trivia. There exists a map of the territorial Kansas, and you actually go on Kansas memory and look at it, that indicates that large portions of Colorado were once part of our state. Um, have you seen this, this map? I love this map. Um, and how is it possible that Kansas once owned Denver? And do Denverans know this? <laughs> Let's say that again. Denver, Kansas. <laughs> Rocky Mountains of Kansas. Pikes Peak of Kansas. It just yes. rolls off the tongue. I haven't actually seen the original yet, so I'm really looking forward to seeing it on display in the exhibit. It's one of those wonderful treasures that stays in cold storage much of the time. But yeah, originally um, Kansas territory extended to the summit of the Rocky Mountains. And so the Pikes Peak Gold Rush in 1859, that was in Kansas. People don't realize
realize that. So was there actually a Denver at this time? Um, there was a Denver. I don't know exactly how early. Denver was around in the 1850s, but I don't know what year. So, yeah, in the 59, and Kansas became a state in 61. So mm-hmm. in 59, there was a Denver. It was probably a bunch of shacks. Um, and it was just a jumping off place to the gold fields. But, yeah, there was a Denver in 59, Denver, Kansas Territory. Are there maps of Kansas uh, that predate the Lewis and Clark expedition, which happened in like 1803. It was kind of one of the first major expeditions to go through what is, you know, kind of the center of North America. Um, so for most people, that's the first time anybody would have actually been out actually trying to measure and track where things are at. Um, are there maps that predate this? Were there people mapping this portion of the country? Yeah, not in the way we think of maps today, certainly not detailed and um, you're, you're really, yeah, barely the rivers, uh, my understanding is. I haven't seen that many of them. I know we have a couple in our collections that date from the late 1700s that'll probably be on display in the exhibit, and that'll be really great to see, uh, for people to see, because those don't come out very often. Um, but yeah, you have people just weren't the whole military exploration and mapping of this part of the world really didn't happen until Lewis and Clark. That was Mm -hmm. a military expedition. And thereafter, Fremont and Pike and Long and all those military explorers were really getting into mapping. Mm -hmm. So Kansas now really just kind of written off the map uh, in those early ones. So, I mean, it is kind of, to me, it's pretty amazing. Like 1800 or 1803 was the first time anybody had actually been trying to figure out what was out here. Yeah. And it's only, you know, 50 some years away and you have the Civil War where people are battling over this land. Yeah, not long at all. And just a couple years prior, nobody even really knew what was out here. Mm-hmm. Um, maps are maps give an interesting perspective on the passage of time. Uh, along with depicting settlement and the advancement of civilization, which we, which we kind of think of with maps as, you know, just depicting progress. Especially 19th century. Right. Maps also kind of depict the death or shrinking of land to an extent. Um, on the disappearance of communities. Uh, How will this exhibit address that? Well, we're going to have a section on railroads, and the railroads, of course, were the advancers of civilization in the 19th century. And um, as part of a railroad being laid, I mean, they had to map and make sure they were laying the the tracks in the appropriate part of you know the landscape but also you saw uh, towns being laid out along those tracks every Mm -hmm. 10 to 15 miles that worked really well in the 19th century but today when the railroad is just uh, it's for freight largely um, there's some passion passenger service but it's mostly freight those towns have really experienced a sharp decline Mm -hmm. And many of them don't exist or are just a crossing Mm -hmm. um, in the road. So that's going to be very interesting to compare what there was in the 19th century to today. Uh, You want the exhibit to be more than just maps on the wall, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Um, How will you guys do this? Because I know you've been talking about um, trying to approach maps from uh, from different perspectives. Yes, well, it's still early in the planning stages, but one of the um, ideas we had that generated this exhibit was to show a map next to, uh, let's say, an artwork uh, that depicts a scene from uh, a scene that's indicated on that map mm-hmm. somehow, and so people could compare the two. 
but it's kind of been expanding to um, include artifacts, perhaps three, three-dimensional objects that are associated with an event, maybe mm-hmm. from that map, like the the gold rush, you know, or a lot of different possibilities. Railroad artifacts with a railroad map, and our intention is to pop out something on that map for people to catch their attention through other collections. All right, Rebecca. Well, thanks for telling us about the map exhibit. My pleasure. I'm Merle Riedel with the answer to today's Kanza quiz regarding the town hit by the first EF5 tornado. The answer is Greensburg, Kansas. Ted Fujita, a tornado researcher from the University of Chicago, developed the scale in the 1970s to measure tornado intensity. Experts assess damage to structures and calculate a Fujita value, ranging from F0 to the most powerful at F5. In 2006, the system was recalibrated and named the Enhanced Fujita Scale. On the evening of May 7, 2007, under the cover of darkness, a powerful tornado devastated Greensburg, Kansas. With nearly 95% of the town gone, and the death of 11 residents. The Greensburg tornado was the first EF5 tornado on record. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and collections intern Ashley Sherrod. Today, we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the International Space Station. Ashley, uh, can you give us a little background on the old ISS? Yes, I can. The ISS is a large, low-orbit space station constructed by a multinational consortium of nations in order to research Earth sciences and facilitate potential interplanetary travel. (laughs) That's an awesome (laughs) sentence right there. (laughs) Lots of big words. To defuse the immense costs of space station building, five national space agencies combined efforts. Partner nations included the U.S., Russia, Japan, Canada, and the European Union. In 1998, construction began on a design that was actually the product of several shelved Cold War-era space stations from member nations. So it's basically kind of a space station mashup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Other little stations. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got it. Nice. Most significant among the designs was the Russian Mir station, which in effect served as a prototype. Priced somewhere between $35 billion and $160 billion. That kind of cracks me up. <laughs> huge huge range in money. <laughs> right, somewhere between $35 billion and $160 billion. Yeah, if you're dealing with just single dollars, that would be yeah. a huge that's, that's how my bank someday. <laughs> I spent somewhere. Originally scheduled to be deorbited in 2016, recent policy extends the station's life to 2028. Right. How do you feel about that if you're an astronaut that's going to be living there? Mm. Well, it was originally supposed to expire in 2016. We're going to go ahead and push it to 2028. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, it costs somewhere between 30, $35 and $60 All right. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, now to the game. As a contestant, Ashley, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and the ISS. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Nikayla, would you like to go first? 
Well, the International Space Station, as Ashley mentioned, is a joint project, and the U.S. agency responsible for our portion of it is NASA, um, also known as the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Yes, well, familiar with this. Yes. You might be surprised to know that NASA was not the United States' first governmental agency to research space. Before NASA, there was the NACA, and that's not NACA, it's the NACA, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Mm -hmm. It was founded in 1915, and its main concern was war-related projects, which we don't really think of space research now like that. But Of course, President Woodrow Wilson was the president who signed the legislation to create the NACA, and he did that on the 3rd of March, 1915. Well, in 1924, William Allen White wrote a biography of Wilson entitled Woodrow Wilson, The Man, His Times, and His Tasks. And he also got to meet President Wilson in the White House when he was... Uh, when he was a correspondent in Europe and helping with the Red Cross, he kind of reported back to Wilson with some suggestions about ways the U.S. could get involved. Uh, so here's mine. Along with the Soviet Mir space station, the ISS design was heavily based on Skylab, which was a U.S. space station from the 1970s. Skylab was actually first theorized by Ver Werner von Braun in his 1959 seminal study, Project Horizon that actually outlined a plan to militarize the moon. Uh, though Warner's father, Magnus von Braun, would eventually become Germany's agricultural minister prior to the Nazi regime, his political career actually began in 1919 near Paris, France, where he was appointed the chief press officer of the fledgling Weimar Republic. So Germany ends... Everybody's in Paris to sign the peace treaty, and the Weimar Republic begins. He gets to be the first spokesman. Magnus uh, actually attended the signing of the Versailles Peace Treaty, uh, which effectively ended World War I. While there, he may have seen William Allen White, who also attended the Versailles Peace Treaty signing. In a Where's Waldo type moment, like Where's William Allen White? Ooh, he may have, he may seen. have seen. Yeah. Well, the connection is that they were both at the at signing the of the peace treaty. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I would also not good enough for <laughs> no. you to be signing a probably the most important document of the 20th century. <laughs> I would right. also like to say that Magnus von Braun <laughs> should be a superhero <laughs> or a super villain yeah. or a super villain. Magnus no. von Braun. All right. Um, uh, so, Ashley, so, which one do you believe is real? I'm going to go with Nikayla. One, because I don't think Nikayla has ever not had a truthful. You <laughs> <laughs> may be on to a, to a system there. White. And I, I'm not so sure about the Skylab and Magnus von Braun and the whole Where's Waldo situation. <laughs> well, they was, I mean, Skylab really did exist okay. and it was part of. Werner von Braun's kind of, you know, slightly harebrained militarizing the moon idea. Okay. Uh, the only thing that's not correct there is that Magnus von Braun, his father, um, didn't go to the peace treaty conference. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Ashley. Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Absolutely. For our next episode, we attempt to connect William Allen White to Tom and Jerry, a classic cat and mouse cartoon duo from the 1950s centered around an antagonist relationship that often resulted in both comedy and disturbing violence. 
Tom and Jerry's dysfunctional relationship set the standard for later cartoon duos like Bugs Bunny and Yosemite Sam and Barton Homer Simpson. So come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to Tom and Jerry. Was White known to chase cats with waffle irons, mallets, and exploding <laughs> refrigerators? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. That concludes episode 138, Twisted. If you would like to see images of the first tornado ever photographed, or browse through a few Kansas maps, just go to kansasmemory.org, our online digital repository. We'd love to hear what you think of our podcast, so please feel free to complete a podcast survey from the podcast page of our website, kshs.org. Come back in two weeks when Nikayla Zimmerman and I embrace the best parts of summer by examining a bikini from the 1960s. More than just worn by blonde summer bombshells, the name bikini is literally a reference to the nuclear bombs of the Cold War. Find out how bikinis and bombs are connected. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Mm